1: Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. Today is the 1st of December, 2006, and we are going to take you back to one of the high periods of the Cold War and to one of the extraordinary events uh, that happened during that period, and that will be what came to be known as the defection of Stalin's daughter. And my guest today is Bob Rail, who was a career CIA officer and uh, was the individual who actually escorted her out of New Delhi an event that captured headlines around the world uh, and put him and the whole event on the front page of Time Magazine and newspapers all around the world. Now, by pure happenstance, a member of our board, General Oleg Kalugin, whom you have heard previously, uh, happened to stop by this morning, and he, uh, at that time, which was 1967, was the deputy chief of station, or the deputy deputy resident, as they're called, here in Washington, D.C. So he had personal awareness uh, of that whole situation and has some interesting comments. Now, before we get to that, we thought it might be interesting uh, today to discuss the case of Alexander Litvinenko. As you know, he is the former KGB officer who recently uh, died in London of very mysterious circumstances, uh... assumed by many to be an assassination that is not uh... totally clear at this point uh... but uh, since all three of us are here uh... and we all have views we thought that would be of interest to you uh... let me start with uh... general kalugin Oleg. uh... again a member of our board former chief of counterintelligence for the soviet uh... uh intelligence service the kgb and uh... now living in america and an american citizen uh, Oleg, you knew, uh, I know a number of people who both were in the KGB when, when uh, Litvinenko was and who are still in the KGB. Let me just ask you your uh, unadulterated view of the situation.
2: I have no doubt that Colonel Litvinenko was assassinated by the Russian security services This guy, uh, once he uh, emigrated to England, was targeted by the services. Uh, And all of these guys who defected to the West uh, in one way or another, particularly in the Soviet days, were targeted for assassination. Litvinenko's case was special. He um, um, uh, revealed the ugly picture of the KGB involvement in the bombing of Russian apartment houses in 1999, which provided or actually propelled uh, the guy totally unknown at the time, Vladimir Putin, to the Russian presidency, because he was the one who said, as a chief of the Russian FsB at the time that uh, Russia will take care of the terrorists, and many uh, Russians felt that this guy will really lead the country out of the of the crisis. Well, Litvinenko wrote a book uh, which was very convincing in uh, facts he presented uh, about the KGB involvement in that deliberate bombing of the Russian apartment houses, but he did more than that. When he uh, uh, well settled in London, he started to contribute on a regular basis to the Chechen Press website. The Chechen's website belongs to the Chechen, well, terrorists or freedom fighters. That depends how you view them. They do use terrorist methods. That's correct. And yet they represent the voice of the free Chechnya. Hopefully one day it will be just as independent as Ukraine, Central Asia, Baltic states, and uh, some of the republics of the Caucasus. Well, anyway, um, uh, Litvinenko contributed weekly. And in his attacks on the current Russian policies, he particularly emphasized the ugly role of the president of Russia. And in fact, some of his attacks on the president personal attacks were so vicious that I myself, when I read these pieces, I thought, well this will end badly for Mr. Litvinenko. Uh, He would not discuss simply the politics of uh, the Russian uh, uh, president, but he would discuss the personal traits, some of the flaws of character, some insulting, humiliating for any person, true or not. And I thought, well, Litvinenko will end badly. And that's precisely what happened. I do not rule out that it was Putin, uh, uh, as president of Russia, said, well, this guy, and we know Putin, I mean the Russians know, as a vengeful guy who never forgets things which he believes are insulting and humiliating. He ordered the assassination and the FSB carried it out in London. Well, let me, uh, ask, you,
1: uh, well, let me ask you, Oleg. Um, I think one of the things that turns up in, in conversations I have is people are struck By the fact of his death, and if it was a poison like this polonium two hundred and ten that's being alleged, it seems awfully sloppy, awfully awfully something that couldn't be controlled. That now they're finding in hotel rooms and the restaurant, and now on jetliners. And whereas one, when one thinks of assassination, one thinks of something done with precision, whether it's a rifle shot or a bullet to the head or. You know, those assassinations in history, even with Trotsky, of course, it was, a, you know, a, an ice pick to the head. But it was a very pointed, uh, precise act. This seems to be sort of all over the place. I mean and, – and, and so it leads people to question the plausibility of its being an assassination.
2: Well, in this case, unlike uh, assassination by shooting or using the axe or whatever – or automobile accident. uh, There are lots of uh, theories uh, deliberately spread by the Russian uh, security services. Uh, There are at least 12 theories today as to what happened to the guy. From his uh, suicide and uh, the fact that he simply was poisoned by uh, fish at the restaurant and uh, the CIA stood behind, another version. Uh, the matter is that uh, in the case of a simple assassination as it used before, uh, it's much easier to find the culprit. In this case, uh, it's not easy. People are confused. Uh, the British police has not yet stated it was a murder. They are still investigating. I have no doubts, but they have the evidence. And when they say so publicly, then we will certainly know it came from Russia. And I'm very pleased to find out in uh, well, uh, latest news that the uh, British police found traces of radioactive material on the... Um, uh, just uh, uh, British Airways uh, uh, in the Moscow-London connection that shows the direction where the stuff came from, and that's very significant because uh, well, things uh, uh, could be said anything. Well, Russian theories that was Berizovsky, one of the friends of Litvinenko. By the way, Litvinenka was a courageous and honest officer. And he was the one who saved Berizovsky from assassination. So Berezovsky owes him his life. But yet the Russians say, Oh, this bad guy and he's an evil of you know embodiment of evil. He just tried to get rid of one of the witnesses of his crimes. So the Litvinenko was killed by the FSB. I have no doubts. I trust the British police will come to the same conclusion. The evidence provided so far is very convincing. Well let's wait for a few days.
1: Uh, let me just uh, uh, turn for a moment to uh, Bob Rail, uh who was, a, as I said, a career CIA officer and who actually early in his career actually did serve in Moscow and, uh, and uh, learned Russian uh, in the course of his career. Uh, Bob, I know you're, you're, uh, you're no longer active, as they say, uh, but like uh, Oleg and myself, you're certainly following the events. And I just turn to you for your opinion. How does it look to you?
0: Uh, I agree with Oleg. I think it's got all the earmarks of an assassination. Uh, it's uh, like you said. It's it's a little bit uh, out of the norm of previous assassinations in that this was uh, not a precisely targetable weapon that was used. But I I think uh, that Litvinenko definitely had made himself a target, and it's not surprising that. Uh, Someone uh, made him suffer for it.
1: I, I notice uh, uh, in the course of all this, of course, the uh, Putin has uh, said the whole idea is, is silly and ridiculous, and that uh, uh, that he would he his government would cooperate in the investigation. Now, of course, anyone can say that, and uh, you know you have to take it with a grain of salt. Will the proof will be in the pudding? But. Uh, uh, is there anything you'd either one of you would like to add, uh, Bob, on the on the case or uh, General Kalugin?
2: The Russian Prosecutor General's Office said they will help in the investigation. What else could they say? Could they decline an offer? This is a very understandable. Uh, position of the Russian officials. It does not reveal uh, anything. They will probably try to mislead the uh, British investigators. Well, that will be their role. But uh, for the public consumption, it's a good gesture of goodwill on the part of the Russians. In fact, President Putin himself said, it's a tragedy of the anyone killed and we will participate in the investigation with the British authorities. So, that's duplicity. That's What a brand of uh, current Russian regime. That's a brand name, duplicity. Okay. Well, thank you both for your comments. Um,
1: I would ask you if you you could, uh, Oleg, to stay just for our discussion on uh, uh, Bob's role in the uh, Svetlana case and the case of Stalin's daughter, since you were an active KGB officer at the time, then serving in Washington, and uh, had a perspective on the case. Um, Let's go back to you, Bob. I I know you've... uh, uh, told your story for CIA trainees and others, but could you you take us back in a sense to uh, 1967, which was certainly uh, a heyday period for the Cold War. Uh, my recollection is that uh, in India, where you were serving in New Delhi, um, they were, of course, being wooed by the United States and by the Soviet Union, and I think Indira Gandhi was the uh, I believe, the, the prime minister at the time and was, uh, I think, favorably inclined towards the Soviet Union at that time. So that was the political context of of the time. If you could take us back to that period as a young officer uh, serving in that country and how uh, this case arose, how it came to your attention. In other words, uh, uh, you woke up one morning and what?
0: Uh, well, let me just back up a little bit, Peter, and and say that uh uh defectors were considered and probably still are a major source of intelligence for the United States and therefore every United States embassy around the world has a, uh prepared itself to receive a defector or walk-in as we sometimes call them uh properly and securely and uh, to help them if they're asking for help
1: uh I was. Yeah, if yes. I could just uh, join, uh, thank you for reminding me of that, that defectors, that is, people who deliberately chose to go to the other side, often were an enormous source of information and insight uh, during that period into the Soviet Union or, or other countries in East Europe where we had very limited access. But there were also, or I should say, and also, there were also defectors who were so high profile who were such major figures in Soviet society or wherever, that the very fact of their defecting had a significance beyond whatever information they they might have. And I think that certainly applies in this case. But go ahead.
0: Yes, that certainly applied to Svetlana's case because she had very little useful intelligence, uh, some very interesting historical information about her father's death, for example. But, uh, but her value was in the impact on the world scene of a, a figure who had been some kind of royalty in the Soviet Union and, and the, the daughter of Joseph Stalin himself chose to leave that uh, philosophy and that regime behind and defect to the West.
1: I know when you and I were talking earlier, you described her as, as uh, well. You described uh, both Stalin and his wife as as parents. Uh, he was, I think, in her early years, of her, early years, a very loving father. But both he and his wife were real activists uh, in the party. They were often away, and she was sort of, she was raised in that atmosphere. Uh,
0: yeah, that's correct. But she she still um, uh, well. She was six years old when her mother uh, died. Uh, she still had fond memories of her father. She did, was not aware of all of the, uh, depredations that he committed. She must've known something about them, but still to her, he was a loving father. She didn't see a lot of him, but their, their relationship was very loving and, and friendly as indicated by those pictures that appeared, years earlier in, I believe, uh, life magazine. um, Yeah, she had uh, chosen to stay out of the limelight. She was not by any means a public figure uh, in the Soviet Union. Her, she was uh, uh, known, main, she worked as a translator, I believe, probably for uh, uh, one of the literary uh, agencies in, in the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, she d- had deliberately kept herself away from politics. She didn't want to be involved in any aspect of, of uh, the life of the Communist Party, or she was she was of course a member of the party, but uh, she was not active and she was not terribly political. She wanted to be a writer. She was a writer, and uh, she uh, did not want to be perceived as trying to build a political career on the basis of her relationship with her father.
1: Well, as as you and I both know, and and Oleg is certainly we're well aware. Uh, the decision to defect is often a complex one, uh, sometimes even beyond the knowledge of the person who is defecting. Um, I- if you could uh, give us sort of a picture of what led to her decision, given that she you know she was a translator, she was a, she was equivalent to uh, royalty in the Soviet Union. We can get Oleg's comments on that and the significance of her defection. what then led a woman who was... Uh, in a very good and affluent position, if you like, to defect.
0: Well, I'll try to uh, summarize this. Uh, first, for years, she had felt that her life was being controlled and directed by the Soviet government. She wasn't, even though she was uh, a princess, you might say, uh, she didn't really have the freedom to do what she wanted. Uh, the uh, This came to a head Uh, maybe six months or a year before she defected when uh, uh, she had made the acquaintance of uh, an Indian communist who was living and working in in Moscow and fell in love with him and he with her, and they wanted to get married. Uh, The Soviet government, uh, I believe uh, Mr. Kosygin at the time, uh, refused to give her permission to marry. Uh, This rankled her and uh, made her furious, really. Then her her uh, would be husband uh, uh, fell ill and died. Uh, she suspected some somewhat. I, I don't think uh, she's really convinced of this, but she suspected that he had uh, that w- uh, medical treatment had been withheld from him, and that had led to his death. So that uh, uh, strengthened her anger. Um, then she had written a book uh, and she had, had completed the book she was afraid it would never be published in the Soviet Union uh, because it was basically about her father and her life with the father uh, so that was another reason uh, she was uh, given the opportunity to defect because after her her fiancé died uh she brought his ashes back to new delhi uh, he had, before he died he had made her promise that she would personally bring his ashes uh, back to india where he could have a proper hindu burial um, he was a maharaja by the way he was he was a, a very even though he was a communist he was a very prominent
1: uh, person a um, uh, maharaja being the equivalent of sort of a prince in society he, yes okay. right mm-hmm. and uh uh and in fact
0: uh the, uh, he was the uncle of uh, Rajesh Singh who was the reputed uh, uh, he was a minister of por- por- without portfolio in Indira Gandhi's government and was reputed to be her lover uh, so he uh, he was very well connected with the uh, Indian government so the government of India actually uh, put pressure on the Soviet government to allow Svetlana to come to India with Rajesh's ashes uh, which they had initially refused to do, it took her six months of, of uh, networking to get this uh, permission to come. So this provided the opportunity uh, with all that background about her unhappiness over the way she was uh, being manipulated and, and, and treated, uh, she, she actually then got the opportunity to to come to the west. It's probably interesting that she she fell in love with India as soon as she got there. Uh, She, uh, as I said, her her, uh, fiancé had been a Maharaja. And so when she uh, went to visit his family with his ashes, she went, even though it was out in a kind of remote part of India, uh, she went to a palace, not to a mud hut. And she was very warmly received by his family and uh, just absolutely became entranced with the place and wanted to spend the rest of her life there. Uh, Her first choice was not to come to the United States, but to stay in India. Uh, She tried to get approval working through Rajesh's nephew, uh, 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 Dinesh Singh, uh, to um, asked Indira Gandhi if she could stay, and Indira Gandhi refused to give her permission. She did not want to offend the Soviet government. So that was uh, the situation. Uh, she had uh, been given approval by the Soviet government to stay in India only two weeks. But to her surprise, the uh, uh, when the Indian embassy put the visa in her passport to let her come to India, they gave her a three-month visa. So she said, ho, 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 uh, I don't have to go back in two weeks. And so she stayed in Kalakankar, the the Indian village where uh, her uh, fiancé had had lived, uh, for the full three months. And this caused a good bit of consternation at the Soviet embassy in New Delhi because uh, Moscow was leaning on them saying, why don't you send her back? Why isn't she back here? Get her back here. And she was quietly sitting out there in this palace and refusing to even communicate with the embassy. She
1: Let me just ask, you, because I want to, uh, at some point in the story, uh, as it becomes more and more public, get a reaction from, uh, uh, from Oleg. At this point, when she was just living in the village, was there any great amount of publicity or was this sort of quietly taking place at a low level?
0: Everything was very quiet. Uh, we did not, we meaning the, let's say, not just CIA, but the whole uh, uh, embassy in, in uh, New Delhi, had no idea that she was there. In fact, we didn't even know that she existed. We'll be right back after this.
1: Okay, now, uh, just to... Uh, keep our story moving along. My recollection is literally one morning you came to work, and there was someone there waiting uh, to see an American official.
0: Well, it was actually in the evening. I okay. uh, yeah, uh, I was uh, had been out, got home, had a telephone call from the Marine Guard. Uh, that was usually some kind of bad news. The the Marine Guard would call to tell you that you had left your safe open, and that, of course, would not be good. Uh, In this case, uh, he gave me the code phrase that we had worked out in our defective procedures that indicated there was a walk-in at the embassy. Uh, I was on the committee uh, that that was responsible for handling walk-ins, and I was actually the first person supposed to be
1: called. Okay, just very quickly, uh, a walk-in. You and I understand by that literally someone who has walked into the embassy, perhaps phoned first, but they walk in, and I'm sure uh, uh, the uh, Soviet embassy where you were serving at the time had the same experience. Somebody would walk in they might ask to see the chief of intelligence, they might ask to see an American official because they had information, but it would trigger uh, a reaction by uh, the Marine Guard, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, and by American officials to try and uh, deal with that efficiently and effectively. So if it was someone of genuine worth, uh, they might or might not agree to go back and provide information, or in this case, uh, That was not the case. Why don't you take it from there?
0: Uh, Well, uh, I arrived at the embassy about 7 o'clock in the evening. And as I recall, it was the 7th of March in 1967. And uh, the Marine Guard on duty just pointed to a little anteroom where uh, she was waiting. And actually, she was uh, talking with our consul, a gentleman named uh, George Huey, who was actually the first American official to talk to her. And I was the second one. He just marked time waiting for me to get there. Uh, about the first thing she said to me was, well, you may not believe this, but I'm Stalin's daughter. Well, she was right. <laughs> it was pretty hard to believe. Uh, bearing in mind that we had no idea that, that Stalin had a daughter at that time. She, we had no idea that uh uh, if he had a daughter that she was in India or uh, any of this. Now, the Indian government knew all about this and they had kept that very carefully a secret from us. Uh, so, I looked, uh, My, I guess I did a double take. She had handed me her passport at this point and I quickly looked at the, her passport and, and to read her name again and, and the name, of course, was Svetlana E. Alleluia. Well, the E stood for Yosefovna, daughter of Joseph so i said okay that's possible and uh then uh, the next way to confirm uh her identity was she she said well i asked her immediately how much time she had and and uh, she said uh, well she couldn't go back really she uh, but before the before they discovered that she was uh, gone uh that she might have the rest of the night, but she was expected for dinner at the home of the former Indian ambassador in Moscow, T.N. Cole, And she said, I've really got to call him or his daughter and let them know that I'm not coming. So uh, I said, okay, uh, let me dial the number for you. So I quickly looked up Call's number, dialed it and handed her the phone and then listened as she explained that. She had a headache or something like that. was not going to make it for dinner. Uh, this uh, Tn Call's daughter, by the way, who had been a friend of Svetlana's in Moscow, is the one who brought her the manuscript of her first book, 20 Letters to a Friend, out. And she had passed it back to Svetlana after they got to New Delhi. So... So that was uh, the situation at that time. Uh, She passed those two little simple tests, and so my next act was to call my boss and let him know that uh, this was going on.
1: Now, as I recall, because you were recounting this to me earlier, um, there was a certain amount of back and forth cable traffic uh, between uh, uh, your folks and, and, uh, and Washington. Uh, And uh, I would just ask you, uh, maybe we can compress that a bit, but give us a sense of the atmospherics and at what point the case became public.
0: Okay. The uh, first act uh, that any of us would take upon receiving a walk-in is to get basic biographic data, name and a little bit about the person, and send it by cable to headquarters ask, asking for traces that is, whatever the files indicate about the person uh, in her case uh, there was just no answer the, it turned out I found out later that we had no information at all about her in CIA files or in the, the government files in the FBI files No, there was just no official record that she existed uh, but this kind of threw headquarters into a, uh, a little bit of a, uh, paralysis because, uh, they didn't know quite what to do. And their, their answer uh, was not to answer They didn't send any response at all. Uh, the next thing, maybe two hours later, I sent a more detailed report and my boss, uh, a gentleman named David Blee, uh, was a very decisive and a very uh, knowledgeable person about what was possible and what wasn't possible in India. He immediately reasoned that one, we were not going to be able to determine her bonafides through the expressions we use. Uh, that is, we weren't going to be able to determine definitively who she was uh, uh, there in, in New Delhi. And he said, she's got to leave New Delhi. And the. Uh, the uh, only way to uh, uh, get her out would be to leave immediately before she was missed. And he asked me if I would be willing to accompany her, and I said yes. and uh, So we began to devise a plan to get her out of uh, New Delhi and to some other country where we would not be under pressure. He felt that the Soviet Union had so much leverage on the government of India that if if we announced that uh, she had defected and was in our embassy, that the embassy would immediately have been surrounded by Indian forces and that we would not have been able to get her out. So we wanted to avoid a major confrontation with the government of India. And she walked in at at 7 o'clock in the evening, At about 10 or 10.30, she and I were at the airport getting ready to leave.
1: Let me just ask you at this point, um, so far it hasn't broken in the press. Was there concern on your part, that is you and Blee and your colleagues, that as word or if word of, of her defection were to leak out, that not only the Indians might react but the Soviets might react, that is the Soviet presence in Delhi at the time, and that that could take the form of possibly trying to to, to uh, uh, snatch her back, to, to kidnap her, or even possibly uh, you, you couldn't rule out an assassination or something of that nature. Was that of concern to you at the time?
0: Yeah, that was definitely a concern because we, we felt that the um, Soviets would definitely try to get her back by force if necessary. And um, – probably by uh, putting pressure on the government of India not to let her leave and to get her and return her. So uh, that was a major concern. We, uh, I think we all realized that uh, her defection, if she indeed turned out to be who she was claiming to be, uh, would be a major psychological blow against the prestige of the, the Soviet government. So uh, we were sure that they'd make every effort to get her back.
1: So you were at the airport at at, uh, at 10 o'clock, and and you boarded a flight. uh, Now, was that flight bound for the United States, or was it uh, bound for another city?
0: No, the the flight we actually got on was bound for Rome, which is where we eventually uh, went. Uh, As I recall, it was a Qantas flight. Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, in fact, you boarded. Now, at that point, when you boarded the aircraft, there was no attendant publicity. In you know, other words, nothing had broken.
0: No, nothing at all. In fact, uh, she had uh, managed to evade the security at the embassy, and they were not aware that she had gone. She had left uh, her room uh, in the guest quarters at the embassy arranged in such a way that it looked like she was packing. She had left a lot of. Uh, clothing and things lying around the room and an open suitcase, and she just brought a small handbag with her.
1: So as, as the daughter of Stalin, she almost had a sense of what we call tradecraft. That is, she was being somewhat devious even in her flight yes, uh, to the West.
0: She did. Now, the American embassy was only about 200 yards away from the uh, Soviet embassy, so she took a very short taxi ride to our embassy. And no one, there was a big party going on at the Soviet embassy and nobody missed her. She walked out and nobody saw her get in a taxi. Uh, And uh, so she showed up and was not missed as it turned out until the next morning. She was scheduled to return to Moscow on an Aeroflot flight the next morning at about uh, uh, 11 o'clock, I believe it was, or noon. And uh, this was a, a weekly flight, and one of the problems we were confronting was that the flight arrived at about 5 o'clock in the morning uh, from Moscow. And when this flight would arrive, a whole delegation from the Soviet embassy would go out to meet the flight because there'd be diplomatic couriers on board and people coming in and people uh, 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 getting ready to leave. And so the uh, We wanted to make sure that we got a flight out of New Delhi uh, before this huge contingent of Soviets arrived at the airport and would see us. And actually, that was quite a tense time because when our plane arrived. You mean in Rome? No, in in New Delhi. When the plane came in, because it flew in from Qantas, Mm -hmm. uh, they developed a mechanical problem. They had to change the compressor. So we sat in the departure hall at, at the uh, uh, airport for about four hours, waiting while the mechanics changed a compressor. And bef- uh, towards the end of that period, I, I went out and looked around the main part of the uh, airport. The, and uh, the air float people had arrived and were opening up their booth and getting ready for the arrival of the air float flight. Well, finally, just bef- shortly before they were scheduled to arrive, we finally got airborne.
1: Now, you're, as I recall, the flight itself was fairly uneventful. But once you arrived in Rome... Well, once we arrived in Rome...
0: Uh, let me just back up and say that I was convinced that we would just touch down in Rome and then immediately proceed to the United States. Uh, when we... Uh, Got off the airplane in Rome. I was met by uh, a friend of mine, a colleague of ours, who was deputy chief of, uh, of our office in uh, Rome. And uh, also, uh, they there was some concern also about security. There was some feeling uh, that the Soviets might try, if they had found out that she had defected and that that was where we were, uh, there might be an effort to snatch her back for, uh, in Rome, so we had enlisted the assistance of the Italian intelligence service, and she, uh, they sent. They must have canvassed the whole capital for the biggest, toughest, meanest-looking. Uh, uh, officers they could find so I, th- when we got off the airplane I thought I was surrounded by the defensive line of the Washington Redskins these were huge guys and uh, they took us to a safe apartment where we would uh, spend as it turned out the next few days but my, the words that greeted me by my colleague was that the State Department uh, refused to allow her to continue to the United States so I was stunned by that. I, I couldn't believe it. There was one particular official in the State Department who felt that uh, we, the relations with the Soviet Union, were thawing, thawing, were warming up. That we were uh, having a, a chance of really. An opening in the Cold War, an opening to to put things on a more peaceful basis with with the Soviets, and he was afraid that this would disrupt those efforts. So he flatly said, his initial response when he learned the uh, that she had defected was kick her out of the embassy, don't have anything to do with her. But by that time, uh, by the time he sent that message out, we were already at the airport and. Uh, the people at at our embassy he said, well, too, you're too late. They've they've gone, and they're on the way to Rome.
1: Now, once you once you reach Rome, now because I remember from that period, I remember photographs in the press and so forth of the plane, and I think of you getting off. At that point, the story had broken. Not yet. Okay. Uh,
0: it it broke in a couple a couple of days later. But we stayed in a safe house in, in Rome for for the rest of that week, really and uh... what our task was then to find out where she could go if the united states was not going to accept her then she had to we had to find her a safe haven somewhere and we tried all sorts of uh... uh, ideas uh, as to where she could go australia well she wanted an english-speaking country uh... she agreed she could go to australia or new zealand or uh, uh... she turned down south africa she she uh, south africa i think agreed to accept her but uh, uh she refused to go to south africa uh but this was all going on for the next couple of days uh the state department and the agency were trying to find a place that would take her uh we agreed that switzerland would be an ideal choice uh this was a, um, a decision we we approached switzerland And this was a decision that had to be made by the Swiss Council, in effect, the the cabinet of of the Swiss government. And they didn't meet until Friday. So we had
1: to wait until Friday to find out. Uh, Let me let me just ask you, Bob. uh, uh, Here you are. The story has not broken um, and there is this tension going on. No idea where she's going to resettle Uh, just in a word or so. How did she handle herself? What was her state of, of, of sort of emotions and mind during that period? What an incredibly tense period that was for her personally. Yeah. She was
0: the calmest person in the room or on the plane or anywhere. She was totally relaxed. Uh, she in, – in fact, I, I guess she showed some tension in the embassy when – before we left – and while we were at the airport, she was concerned that we were so delayed getting out of New Delhi. Once we got on the plane and we were airborne, I, I had imagined, okay, I'm going to interrogate this lady all the way to Rome. And uh, I was prepared to do that. And uh, she uh, just turned to me and said, well, I think I'll have a nap. So she went to sleep. <laughs> so she slept okay. all the way to Rome. Yeah. So um,
1: after the uh, after those two days in Rome— Did you get them the go-ahead to go to the States? Uh, We
0: had, uh, I believe it was Wednesday uh, of that week, we got, uh, a decision was made that we would, if we had not heard from the Swiss government, uh, that we would catch a flight to the U.S. And so we actually, on uh, Thursday, I believe it was, we actually went to the airport to catch a flight to the U.S. in in the uh, afternoon. Now I, I should say that the Italians were very eager to get rid of us. Uh, they were very embarrassed if you probably remember that there was a very active communist party, a legal communist party in Italy that was uh, uh, had a strong delegation in, in the, the Parliament of, of uh, Italy. and uh, there was just a, a lot of concern on the Italian government. Well, how did we get into Italy in the first place? The the chief of our office in uh, Rome that first night while we were airborne on the way had called the uh, uh, the head of the uh, Italian uh, intelligence service, Admiral Henke, and said uh, – I woke him up in the middle of the night and, and uh, said, uh, we need your help. We have a defector coming in. He said, you wake me up in the middle of the night for a defector? And uh, our, the, our man said, well, yeah, but let me tell you who she is. And so he was very concerned, and, and uh, he knew that his government would not like the idea of her being there. So he said, okay, she can come in, but you've got to leave tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, he said, and tomorrow, he said, I'll wait until tomorrow to inform the foreign minister, who was then uh, a man named Funfani. And, uh, uh, he said, but, but I'll have to inform him first thing in the morning. Well, uh, we arrived, uh, in the wee hours of the morning and were taken to this, uh, safe house. Then the next morning, the admiral went to Funfani and explained what had happened and Fanfani absolutely exploded. He said, get those people out of this country immediately. And now, and I don't want there to be any evidence that they were actually in the country. Uh, well, he said, okay, technically we'll say that the international transit hall of the airport in Rome is expanded to include that little apartment where they are temporarily housed.
1: So, so we were never legally in Italy okay so you you uh, when you left, which was on Friday, i gather or what what day did you leave uh, well uh, we le- yes,
0: we left on Friday actually, but we had actually gone to the airport on Wednesday to catch a flight to the states. Uh, uh, we got there and we were told no you, uh, you can 't go so we had to go back to the apartment again
1: then went, but, but then the story had the story broken by Friday.
0: Uh, yes, it it, it by, well. By it broke on Wednesday, actually, when the New York Times uh, uh, reporter uh, initially reported that that uh, Svetlana had defected in New Delhi and that, uh, accompanied by a State Department officer named Robert Rail, she had uh, flown uh, uh, westward and was presumably somewhere in Europe. Uh, they, and actually, by checking, the press can really be effective as investigators when they sense a story. So they had gotten the passenger list of of uh, all the flights leaving New Delhi during that night she'd, when she defected and uh, f- saw her name and my name right there on the passenger list. So uh, we were identified as, as being uh, uh, On the flight to Rome, the uh, uh, I was just identified as a State Department officer at that point. But the next day, uh, the um, New York Times uh, representative in New Delhi, a gentleman named Tony Lucas, uh, discovered through his sources that I was actually a CIA officer. And so he published the story uh, that I was a CIA officer. And uh, that was the end of my
1: uh, cover. So you were. That was you were at that point. You were headline news. I remember the uh, cover of Time and uh, other other people carrying it. I think you were headline news around the world when that story broke. Oleg, you were serving as the deputy chief of what we would call the station here at the Soviet Embassy. Um, therefore, you were both responsible for, uh, you know, collecting intelligence, which you did very ably but also anything that would arise that might be an embarrassment uh, uh, to the Soviet government or anything impinging on the image of the Soviet Union or the embassy would be something you would have, because you were a senior officer, shared the responsibility. What was the effect of this story on you in Washington at that time?
2: My first reaction was that of disbelief. I could not believe it was true. Uh, Then as I listened to the radio, I understood it was all correct. It was Stalin's daughter. And that carried a symbolic message. Not because she knew much in terms of intelligence, I mean, but she would provide a lot of stuff about the life of the Soviet Union under Stalin. But what's more, it struck me as a symbol of the continuous uh, decay in the USSR, when people, even uh, a person like Stalin's daughter, could not accommodate to the current regime. And the third thought which occurred to me, that was the most serious error on the part of those who handled her case or her personal affairs in India. The Soviet diplomats, the Soviet KGB, They simply bungled the whole thing. They humiliated her. And that was part of my thoughts at the time. We cannot handle human lives the way we should because, after all, humiliation and distrust, they... These, um you know, qualities of the officials and bureaucrats, they push many people to defect, to change their views, to change their attitudes. And Svetlana's case was very special because she represented symbolically the former Stalinist uh, empire, the one which crumbled after Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin. And in a sense, this was the end of the story. Stalin's daughter, what a paradox now in the West. Had Stalin known, had he been alive? Oh, what a what a disgrace. What a, a shocking event for all of us. And that was a, a shocking event for me too.
1: Yeah, I think that in a way what you're saying is that uh, my comments earlier that people like Svetlana, although she didn't, as you say, have intelligence as such, she was symbolic, symbolic of the disaffection of, of many other people and had effect probably beyond her own knowledge. Um, I'm sorry, we're going to we're, we're gonna have to go, but I wanted to come back to you, Bob, just to um, – I know you – that she did come to this country, uh, she resettled, eventually became an American citizen, was my recollection. But just as we uh, as we uh, turn from the story, uh, do you have any final comments about Svetlana's flight to the west and your role and, and uh, how that ended.
0: Yeah, I would just like to say that, uh, she, uh, of course, everybody knows that she eventually did come to the U.S. Uh, the Swiss were very helpful in giving her a safe haven for six weeks while everything cooled down. And eventually the State Department U.S. State Department was persuaded to allow her to enter the U.S. And six weeks later, she did and was met by a tumultuous reception when she landed a of one of the New York airports. And um, life has been up and down for her since then, but that's another story.
1: Okay, well, I think we're going to have to go now, but I really want to thank both of you, Bob, for coming in It's sort of one of those highlight moments during the Cold War. Um, I think at some future date, what I'd like to do is pick up where where Svetlana has actually made her way west and uh, see how she did in this country uh in her resettlement and and a whole new life and uh Oleg, i really want to thank you for i know you were stopping by for a very brief moment and thank you very much for staying and and being with us uh through svetlana's story which obviously had an effect on all of us thank you both
2: and i look forward to seeing you again
0: thank you peter it was a pleasure to be here and i'll be happy to come back and
2: finish the story well thanks peter thanks again
1: Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. uh, You can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.